the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Holiday Flintlock Fantasy High Adventure and Monsters of Space, Time, and Underneath Trampolines, which is sometimes conveniently used as a representation of space-time, but science popularizers often leave out those monsters that are under the trampoline in the analogy. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt about the historical fantasy novel Council of Fire. This is book two in the Arcane America Shared Universe series. The first is Dragon Award winning novel Uncharted. And this one is a great kind of follow-up, although it takes place before Uncharted back in the days of the French and Indian War in North America. But this is a North America that's been cut off from Europe, where magic of all varieties suddenly works, and uh, just cool stuff all around. Eric and Walter will tell us about this entertaining book. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Happy Thanksgiving and very happy Black Friday. We hope that Bane books are very definitely on your giving list or that you will tell the appropriate parties exactly what books will make you leap with joy to receive as presents over the holidays. We want to tell you about the Bane one-stop holiday shopping. This holiday season, give the Bane lovers in your life what they really want, more Bane books. You decide the amount. Remember that eARCs are $15 a piece and monthly bundles are $18. Pretty sure they already have everything. Well, this is cool, and I haven't mentioned this on the podcast much, but you can head on over to the Bain Cafe Press store and check out the wide variety of Bain merchandise that we have for sale there. We have travel mugs, t-shirts, I have a lot of these things, by the way, myself, tote bags and more. There's something for every Bane fan, and also don't forget we have these great challenge coins. Complete details at the Bane.com website. And with that in mind, here are the December new hardcovers and trade paperbacks from Bane that are at booksellers next Tuesday. And of course, they are available in ebook form as well. First, there's Accepting the Lance by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Corval in the Crosshairs. Exiled from Liad after bombing a city to save it from the Department of the Interior's Infernal Weapons and Plans Division, Clan Corval has gone to ground on the backwater planet Sherbleek, whose people are as untamed as its weather. But the Department of the Interior is not done with Clan Corval yet. They seek a full reckoning and revenge with Sherbleek and Corval's ship and people everywhere in the crosshairs. Also out in December is Target Rich Environment, Volume 2 by Larry Correa. More stories from the monster hunter himself. 
This is another collection from Larry Correa. More stories from the creator of Monster Hunter International, the Grimnoir Chronicles, and the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. The second volume collects all of best-selling author Larry Correa's short stories, novellas, and novelettes that aren't in the first one, which is called Target Rich Environment Volume 1. Larry's novels are known for their hard-hitting, no-holes-barred action sequences, in-depth world-building, and vivid characterization. Now... He turns to the short form to deliver stories that take no prisoner. And finally at Booksellers in November is Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. Join the resistance. When the UN invaded the Freehold of Gran, the intent was simple. Force a non-compliant star nation back into the collective. What the politicians hadn't counted on was that the Freehold had spent 200 years as the haven for every independent, rebellious, self-reliant adventurer in human space. Grayans and its space habitats have resources beyond measure. Retired intelligence agents, disabled veterans, animal handlers, petty smugglers, half-lame computer specialists, research scientists, planetary engineers, all sorts of human assets, all that have one goal in mind, make the invaders suffer. For their presumption. This isn't just resistance, it's vengeance. Featuring all new stories by Larry Correa, Michael Z. Williamson, Brad R. Torgerson, Mike Massa, Casey Ezel, and more. Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. Target Rich Environment, Volume 2 by Larry Correa, and Accepting the Lance by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are at booksellers everywhere. Hey, and don't forget that David Weber's wonderful Honorverse big story finale, Uncompromising Honor, is still available as hardcover and as a mass market and an ebook. So maybe get some Weber to them that you love over the holidays, too. I want to welcome Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt to the podcast. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over 3 million books in print. He's the author and creator of the Ring of Fire series, which launched with uh, novel 1632. David Drake, he wrote six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series, and David Weber's collaborated in Ring of Fire as well. And uh, it's uh, Eric's books are like the stars at this point. Um, Walter, uh, Eric was for many years a labor union activist, by the way. Um, Walter H. Hunt is the creator of the popular Darkwing Space Adventure series. He has experience in high tech as a software engineer and technical writer. His uh, writing reflects an abiding interest in history, but science fiction has been his favorite reading material since he watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon when he was but a lad. Actually, when Walter was just a lad, I believe. Um, and like most, most people, I believe we actually did it. Yeah. Uh, um, Walter is also an active Freemason and a lifelong baseball fan. Um, he lives in eastern Massachusetts. Uh, so uh, what we want to talk about now is Council of Fire, which is uh, a second entry in this wonderful Arcane America series that um, we've, been, we've been doing that uh, involves... What happens when Haley's Comet comes and, uh, well, let me let you guys set this up. Tell, tell us uh, what we are and where we are as we begin um, Council of Fire. Uh, well, 
<clears throat> the Arcane America, it, it, we call it a series. It's not exactly a series. It's it's a shared universe. But um, the the novel that uh, uh, Kevin Anderson, Sarah Hoyt did was published uh, last year called Arcane America. It's in the same setting. It takes place 40 years later than the one Walter and I wrote. So it's different characters. You know, they're, they're not sequels to each other. Um, the one we wrote takes place right after what we call the Sundering, which was the big event where Halley's Comet either struck the Earth or came, did something to the Earth in the year 1759. Um which had the effect of sundering the old world from the new world. Nobody knows how, but you can't get any longer from the old new world to the old world or vice versa. So the new world is on its own. And at the same time, uh, the other effect of the sundering was that magic starts creeping back into the world. And the magic is based on the various uh, magic systems and mythologies of the people's living at that time in the New World, who were Native Americans, obviously, Africans, and Europeans. So um, it's complex, and it's a different... It's it's part Auckland history, part fantasy, but the fantasy aspect of it is quite different from the kind of European-centric uh, sword and sorcery that people are generally used to. Um, right, the... Uh the cultures that are most are most inclined towards uh, towards the fantastic are the people who get the magic, whereas people who but the Enlightenment rationalists have a tough time with it because they don't they don't have any magic to draw on, and that's the big conflict. Well, they can manage to do it, but they have to use machines to do it. Uh, yeah. So yeah. they yeah. they can tap into it, but they have to do it their own way. Well, a lot of the uh, a lot of the European perspective and of the book is just the characters coming to terms <laughs> with this new world that they found themselves in. Right. Like, uh, well, the key thing is they're cut off now. So, you know, whatever European settlement was in the new world near 1759, that's it. Um, uh, there's not going to be any more coming. Um, and, uh, the, the, our novel focuses mostly on, uh, North America, Canada, New York, and Canada. It's mainly about the, the the relations that have to unfold between the British and the French. Um, uh, uh, William Howe's uh, expedition had supposed to have been launched off the one that actually in real history conquered Quebec, but it's not going to happen now because most of the troops got lost. Um, yeah. So I remember telling. You telling know, Eric early on that it's going to be the Montcalm and Wolf buddy novel because <laughs> the the British and the French have to decide whether they're going to fight with each other or fight with the threat that's coming because they're at war and they have to stop being at war. Tell us about tell us about that um, because this is the French. We're in the middle of the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, when this happens, right? Maybe remind the readers a little bit about the historical uh, context that is real that these characters um, are, and some of them, uh, some of our main characters in the book, like Wolf and Montcalm, and uh, and uh, various of them are, are all real people. The, the Seven Years' War is the is really the last of the great conflicts, the 18th century great conflicts between the British Empire and the French Empire, and the, what we call the Seven Years' War is um, is worldwide. But the French and Indian War is the American part of that. 
Um, it starts in 1754 in the backwoods of Pennsylvania, but by 1759, it is, it is a fully engaged war uh, all over the northern part of the continent. Uh, the British are getting ready to deliver the, what, what they think to be is the killing blow. Uh, 1759 was the year the British won everything, and none of that's going to happen now. Uh, the, the British outnumber the French by a significant number, like 8 to 1 to 10 to 1, but the French have unity of religion and unity of purpose. Whereas the British, the British colonies are all fighting with each other as well as fighting with the French, not violently fighting, but none of them give a, give a damn about each other. And all of a sudden, they're all thrown together having to deal with the fact that there are natives who want to push them off the continent, who want to, take, who want to get their revenge for all of the ills that have been done to them over the last century and a half of European occupation. And that's the central conflict of the book. That, that all of a sudden the, the, the Indians, the natives, are empowered by the idea that, that the Europeans aren't going to get any more help. And maybe this is their chance. So the question is whether the British and French can reconcile themselves to each other in order to deal with the threat. There's also um, the, the Iroquois Confederacy uh, split. And... Um, right. Three of the five tribes um, remain allied with the uh, with the English, and those are the Mohawk, uh, the Onondaga, and the Oneida. But the two westernmost tribes, the Seneca and the Cayuga, um, break, and and they ally with tribes further west under the leadership of a shaman who was really summoning up some. Extremely powerful, uh, we'll call them magical forces. The, the, the framework doesn't exactly fit what Westerners think of as magic, but uh, they're more along the way of spirits. But uh, uh, so that whole part of the book is taken from Iroquois mythology. Um, and there are other Indians involved, but it's mostly Iroquois. Um, that's who we're focusing on. I should add another focus. Of the book is um, is with Africans, um, especially in New York City. Um, there were a lot of slaves in New York City at the time, and there had been a big. You can't call it rebellion because it wasn't actually rebellion. Whites just freaked out and started butchering a lot of uh, Africans in New York City about 20 years before the events yeah, that so are happening here in this country. That's in recent memory of the, of particularly the free blacks in New York. They have to, they have to deal with the idea that, that, that all of this that had happened could happen again, except this time it could be worse. Um, uh, by the way, uh, Aladua Ikuiano, who's the slave who's on board the, the ship, he's a real character, and his, his autobiography is a great source of information about all of this uh, and the black perspectives. Yeah, well, we definitely want to talk about that. Um, the, I guess the way in might be to. So there's two fronts in in the book as you as you start. We've got a group of Englishmen who are going to uh, the northern coast, and there and we have a group of Englishmen who are going to Barbados or uh, down south, and and one of them gets involved with. Uh, and this is the one that Gustavus is on, right? The uh, the one that's headed toward Barbados with um, 
And that one is is run by uh, Edward Boscowen, right? And uh, his his first officer is Pascal, right? Is that the Ilatua is also known as Gustavus because that's what they named him. <laughs> and um, he um, and he's a real historical character. He's really fascinating the way that he he um, deals with Edward Boscowen, uh, the master of the ship, and um, doesn't give anything away that and and manages to stay out of trouble and at the same time um is 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 sort of a warning and harbinger of what trouble the british are in now that they're cut off um tell us a little bit about that voyage what happens in the west indies uh i guess and uh, who who the passengers they pick up what what's the story there that we can set up at least to start with. Well, Boscowen is on his way to the Mediterranean. In in the real in the real history, of course, he was in he was at um, in in the Maritimes in 1758. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Boscowen. I think he's a he's a lost hero. Um, so he's on his way to Euro- to to Europe when the sundering happens, and he makes the choice to to sort of go on one side, and he winds up in the New World. The the passengers he picks up are two French French people, Charles Messier. Uh, who's a famous astronomer, uh, the Messier catalog. And we talk about M31, which is at the Andromeda Galaxy. That's from the Messier catalog. That's that's what the M is. And Catherine Legendier, who is a, who's a Tuckerization, but who's actually a real person that we found uh, who could have been present for this. And the key thing there, of course, is that they have a gizmo. They have a MacGuffin. They have a, a thing called an alchemical compass, which was revealed during the course of the book. Um, Boscowan has to deal with the fact that he's not on his usual post and that since things have changed, including all the supplying of the British Navy, um, that he's dealing with people who, 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 are, who are very stuck into their, into their patterns and who don't really want to deal with him at all. But he realizes that everything has changed and he'd better do his best to, um, to make, make a, a go of it. And then he has the encounter, the encounters in Haiti, which I, I don't want to get into and reveal the, uh, you know, spoil the plot. Well, talk a little bit about what about Voodoo and Obeya a little bit, because those are the magics that get animated. Right, Obeya is is Voodoo. Uh, voodoo is a French word. Yeah, uh, Obeya is the is the native word, and there's all kinds of. There, there actually was a rebellion in uh, on Saint Domingue called Taki's Rebellion. Um, so Taki's a real character too, uh, and it just, of course, he doesn't have the aid of uh, magic <laughs> when, when he's rebelling against the, uh, the the British overlords. But this is once again something's something's gone wrong, and now they have power, and now they're going to try and use it. Um, we 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 try to be somewhat vague about exactly what powers they have, but and, and exactly how it stopped. But they clearly have some powers that uh, that uh, we don't we don't understand. Well, they can animate the dead. Yeah, yeah. and, and <laughs> we wanted to have water zombies attacking the ship. <laughs> we thought that was a good visual visual effect. That would be pretty cool if that were in the book. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about Ma, tell us about Wolf James Wolf and uh, what happened. All right. I mean, you start out with the very time that the comet comes through, and they try to. There's this giant uh, wall of mountains that that becomes the edge of the earth, right out in the middle of the Atlantic. Yep. Yeah. 
and nobody knows where they came from, and there's something very mysterious about them. Um, and they're not going to be able to cross them. It's called the Place of Bones. Yeah, the end of the world. Yeah, and, and yeah. if you read Kevin and Sarah's novel, uh, um, uh, Uncharted. Uh, Uncharted, that takes place on the west. Uh, that takes place in the west, so it'll tell you what happened over there. Yeah. Also uh, coming in the in the summer is um, Peter Wax and uh, and Aton. Uh, what's his last name? Aton Colbert. Oh. Yes, uh, Color of Lightning, which is a which is a Ben Franklin book that's coming out. Um, so, which will take place here? Yeah, when is it scheduled for? Uh, it is a um, it's a June book. I think that Peter's looking over the uh, the final uh, typeset right now. We should have the proofreading. It should be up pretty soon as a eARC. Looking forward Looking to that. Ben Franklin is one of my favorite characters. We, and we had to stay out of the way of Ben Franklin for this book, which is too bad. I really like Ben Franklin. <laughs> yeah, well, we deliberately well, stayed cover. north of We deliberately yeah. stayed north of Philadelphia, so we wouldn't get in his way. Yeah. yeah, the only Pennsylvanian I got was John Bartram, who's also a real character. It was a famous botanist. He's, he is fascinating in the book. Tell us a little, just, let's just... I mean, I, I wanted to try to develop this, uh, have y'all develop the story up to a certain point so we know what's what's going on But uh, as a setup for, for our listeners. But at the same time, tell us about John Bartram because he is, he's basically, um, you know, Ent Whisperer Bartram now. Oh, yeah, yeah he talks to the trees. Um, Bartram was a famous botanist, and he, in fact, he corresponded with Europe and sent back lots and lots of samples. And there's to this day there's a there's a um, there's a public garden in Philadelphia which he founded, uh, the name of which escapes me at the moment. But Bartram is this interesting guy. He's sort of he's sort of Johnny Appleseedish. He 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 traveled around the continent on his own, literally, uh, in this this outfit which is described as like it's like an overcoat with all these pockets in it, and um, and found samples of of plants. So he's he's doing exactly what he was doing except now he can communicate with the trees who he is angry angry and he 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 tells everyone that the trees haven't been consulted in this and they're not really happy. <laughs> so so we give a sort of a fantasy take on John Bartram, but he's a real guy. How did he not get massacred out there by somebody? Um he knew a lot of people. He knew a lot of natives too. Um and uh, I think that he, they, that the natives who are attuned to the land would recognize his power. They wouldn't mess with him. Mm. Well, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> all right. So, well, tell us about uh, what. All right. So, Wolf comes on in, and then on the French side, we have uh, we have Montcalm, and and there are reports that something is very strange going on at. Uh, what we come to know is Ticonderoga, but the French know is what Caroline. Carrion, yeah. Well, a whole bunch of Highlanders were killed in a, in a useless attack on Fort Carrion in 1758, and with the oncoming of magic, the Scots, who are you know who who have a certain amount of of inherent inherent weirdness in them, um, those ghosts still hang around. And I, I think I had to talk Eric into letting me do this. <laughs> it, it turned out to work out really well because we use them later on. Um, but 
they're all angry at the guy, at the Englishman who sent sent them in the attack, who of course is now completely out of reach. Uh, so that uh, that was a fun image too. That that Carrion is filled with Scottish ghosts, Highlanders who might be um, become something like Aragorn's uh, ghost army in the, if somebody could get them to uh, can rouse them. Um, well, we don't steal everything from Tolkien, but only the good parts. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, um, and the the one person that might be able to do so is um, the is there's royalty that is uh, that is afoot English royalty. Who is who is that? Who's he with? Oh, uh, Eric, do you want to take that? He was. Yeah, go ahead. No, please go. He's the younger brother of future George III. But but uh, go ahead. He was your guy to start with. Well, is he a real guy? Uh, the thing is, Prince Edward is the uh, his relationship. I keep forgetting it. If he were in England, he wouldn't be in the direct line of succession because his father. Remind me, Walter. Who was his father? I always blink on it. His father is the late Frederick, uh, uh, the the son of King George the um, Second. Remember that George the Third, uh, future George the Third, was the grandson of the previous yeah. king because his intermediate father died. Um, Edward is his younger brother, and not the next younger brother. He's he's a couple down, but he's he's a ways from the throne. But he's but he's royal, and he's in the he's in the royal navy, and he was royal, and really was in the royal navy. He served Admiral Saunders. So he was a royal officer. He eventually became an admiral. He died. So the thing that happens here is he's the only person left in the New World who has uh, uh, any kind of royal ancestry. So that that winds up being, to a degree, part of the magic that gets unfolded, too. So he winds up playing a very big role uh, in the whole story. So, Wolf and this guy, uh, Prince Edward, and uh, and the English forces, they're basically heading over to try to take take out the French. And the French are have girded themselves for it. And then suddenly this comment comes along. Um, what is uh, what 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 do they do? Um, what what are the possibilities that that they face now? Let's put it that way. Well, the first problem that the British face is um, their entire economy is about to collapse because it was all built on on uh, trade with Europe, um, and that's gone. Um, so that's the first problem they face, and the part of the book is on how they have to try to deal with that. Um, um, which they managed to do in a kind of weird way. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, the, the main focus of the book, though, is on the uh, on on the efforts to forge an alliance between the British, the French, and the and part of the Iroquois Confederacy, and it, which culminates in a great battle at the end of the uh, at the end of the book, um, and, which is actually the, the scene that's shown up on the cover of the book. 
why would they need to band together? Who is the who? Who might be the enemy? <laughs> What's going on here? I mean, you you talked about it before. Obviously, it's um. Well, the reason they need to band together is is because, uh, um, they're now facing um a really uh, they're not just facing you know an Indian uprising like the Kumsas. I mean. Uh, the 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 Indians who are I don't know what you call they're not in rebellion because they're not under the authority of uh, but they're basically trying to drive the Europeans out of the continent uh, and they have at their disposal now some really immensely powerful uh, magic capabilities um, and the uh, the English have to well, the English and the French have to sort of figure out how to deal with this. And that's the reason for the, um, you know, I mean, that's the reason they can't just keep going the way they have been, let's put it that way. Um, right, when, so when the that, British expedition... That's what under... When the British expedition reaches America, their their intention is to continue. But Wolf thinks, well, all right, we'll just invade invade French Canada in a different way. But it clearly becomes uh, it becomes clearly obvious that that's just not possible. And as for the French, they've lost Fort Fort Carrion to the to the Scottish uh, ghosts, and they're dealing with the fact that they have they have these weird magical things happening on their borders. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can get together and, and dance and sing Kumbaya together. They have a, many, many differences that might be irreconcilable. And how they come together is a very big part of the later part of the book. Yeah, because, I mean, they're they're at each other's throats in, in history. Tell us, tell us about the Iroquois magic and some of the monsters that um, start popping up, because those are really cool, especially the shaman... Uh, induced uh those flying heads oh my god scary <laughs> anyway eric found some of the the best things to throw into this book i <laughs> um, you, you should talk well, about it's this part of, uh, part of the attraction to me and uh, you know and this is the uh, the story idea goes back a long long way um uh, i started thinking about it many many years ago um but one of the attractions is that it's a different, it's a whole different uh, mythology um, than European mythology. So, uh, of the monsters that appear in the novel, uh, one of them are the stone coats, who are, are sort of golems. Um, they're the sort of Iroquois equivalent of golems, roughly. And they, um, they're sort of men, but they're made out of stone. Uh, and they're immensely powerful and practically invulnerable. Uh, then there are the floating heads, which are detached heads uh, with tendrils who are really scary. The, uh, probably as scary as what are called the dry hands, which is that uh, some shamans will literally cut off their hands and turn it into a, a magical hand called dry hand that uh, gives them their deadly um, when they use it against an opponent. Um, then there's a sea monster, or a river monster called a Manetto. And then toward the end of the book, uh, there's a kind of giant spirit that the, uh, it's kind of 
an Iroquois equivalent of a uh, elemental that gets summoned toward the final battle, and that's a real challenge to deal with. Then there are the African monsters, uh, because a rebellion does break out in New York City, and and there's one guy who summons uh, he summons monsters. The problem is that he can't control them. So, but there are African monsters too, and they're quite different also. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's different. It really is in terms of what people might be used to. Uh, in normal fantasy. The main thing here is to emphasize that all of a sudden the access to these things is available to anybody who has the ability to summon them. And that this is, it's like the, it's like the, uh, the tap has been, has been opened and all sorts of things that were simply impossible are now possible. And that means that all kinds of people who really shouldn't be, who can't control what, what's coming you know, just pull stuff out of a hat, and then it starts coming. And, and the consequences are, un, in some cases, unforeseen, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's part of the problem is that people develop these powers, but it's not like they have any experience with them. It's new. Right. And uh, some of them know, you know, know how to control it. There's one character in particular who, um, a female character who's uh, who's quite, powerful and, and knows how to control it and also knows when not to mess with it, which is probably just as important. Um, but um, um, some people get very powerful and have no idea what they're doing, so that starts getting very dangerous. Right. We didn't want uh, Gandalf did... the, the Great. We wanted we want characters who, who deal with the unforeseen consequences of their actions. Yeah. How do the... Uh, so... How do, first of all, how do the Europeans, um, how do they fight against this stuff? I mean, how do you how do you fight a sea monster or a lake monster or river monster? Um, is it possible? Well, there's various, <laughs> there's various things they do in the course of the book. One of them is that it's not that magic is impossible for Europeans. It's just that it has to take a different route, so to speak. And there is a couple of characters uh, around Messier who have sort of figured out how to do it. And um, that's um, by using, it's a kind of blend of magic and technology, essentially. Um, And that is, like I said, that's, if you look at the cover of the book, that's the scene on the cover toward the end of the book. Um, and the young woman who's portrayed on the cover is the uh, is the person who's sort of instrumental in doing that. Um, but it's uh, uh, there are various other things they can do, but it's difficult. I mean, they they got their backs against the wall, which is you know part of the whole point of the book uh, is that you know, and they're not going to get any reinforcements. I mean, in, in real history. A huge part of the strength of the Europeans, probably the, ultimately the main part of it, was just simply that they outnumbered everybody. And that's not going to be true any longer because there's nobody coming back, coming over the ocean any longer. So, whatever population they've got, that's it. Yeah. We have these uh, these characters that are, that are, I guess you call them liminals, maybe, or something. They're people that are both 
in the Indian world, the Iroquois world, the Native American world, and the European, the Brants, um, and, um, and, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, 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 uh, William Johnson, yeah. Tell us about them. Yeah, they're some of the coolest people in American history. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and they were ultimately betrayed by America. <laughs> they they wind up in Canada uh, because they they um, they are loyal up to a point. Uh, but uh, we 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 move Sir William Johnson off off stage very quickly so that we can concentrate on Molly. And she's she has this you know she has a power as well. But she was really William Johnson's common law wife, and. The place that she's she's located is real too. I, I want to go visit it in person sometime. Um, but uh, it's a it's a they they are they are very much what you call transitional characters. They're they're part of one foot in the European world and one foot in the in the native world. And if we ever get to do a sequel, I think they'll be they'll have a big part to play. And there there's some of the characters that help the European side understand. Uh, what's going on because they they know people on the like red jacket and people like that on the other side uh, so what else what have what have I left out about the setup that we might also mention um, without getting too far into uh, giving spoilers away um, it's it's just fascinatingly complex but at the same time um, there's so much uh, opportunity for action because there's magic and muskets. <laughs> um, I I like the dry hands a lot. They're I think they're they're the most creepy, most frightening group because they've give they they sort of they're like the Sith. You know, they sort of gone onto the dark side. I don't want to make that parallel exactly, but but they're very nasty because they've made a positive commitment to do something really really evil. And uh, they're pretty pretty happy with it. What can those hands do? Uh, they can they can make you um, they can make you sick. Basically, there's an example given in in the description of the village that they that they attack. Um, they one one guy touches him with his dry hand and the guy collapses. It's sort of like um, it's sort of like poisonous. Plus, they have a certain hypnotic quality to them. That's what we described. Uh, oh, I it. That it, yeah, it's like a you know evil hand, right? But if you, they touch you with their evil hand, they can compel you. But uh, during the the initial part of the battle, toward the end of the book, Revere is Paul Revere is, is is compelled by the dry hand, who's trying to bring him bring him in so he can get close enough to touch him. So they're kind of think of them as sort of a poison wand. Think of a sort of what? A poison wall. Um, well, let me ask you, Eric. You you alluded to the fact that this has been something on your mind for for years. Um, tell us a little bit about the genesis of of the shared world and the book. Uh, I got the idea for <laughs> the origin of it is this: many many years ago. Uh, Steve Saffel, uh, who was then a uh, uh, editor Del Rey, asked me if I could write an alternate history novel 
in which the Trail of Tears never happened. And I told him I could, but he'd have to let me start in the time of the Vikings. Uh, and that's not what he wanted. Uh, he wanted something more contemporary. So I said, well, Steve, I just can't do that. It'd be historical malpractice, because by the time you get to the... He wanted to have it all happen in the 19th century. You know, I said, by the time you get to the 19th century, um, the relocation of the Southern tribes, there's no way you're going to stop it. Um, I mean, just it's just a matter of demographic pressure, um, leaving aside anything else. So I said, that's why I wanted to start in time with Vikings. If you give me enough lead time, then I could, you know, if, if Europeans had settled in North America and, and had a permanent settlement going back to the time of Lee Erickson, then, then, you know, Indians would have had a half a millennium to adapt and adjust, and they wouldn't have been hit by us. Even though the Viking society wasn't significantly more technologically advanced than they were. Well, so that idea didn't happen, and I wound up writing instead a book that became uh, The Rivers of War, uh, which is based on a different premise. But the thought never left my mind, and... Then what I got to thinking about, well, what would happen if you split the old world and the new world? And you put the new world on its own resources somewhere in the middle of the 18th century. And then I figured, well, let's toss magic into the mix at the same time. <laughs> and the idea just sat there for years. To me. Huh? <laughs> and then he pitched it to me. And I said, that sounds Yeah, really yeah. Cool. Well, I know. That actually came a little bit later. Um, then I wound up talking to Kevin Anderson about it, and he found the idea very intriguing. And then he wanted to do, um, um, he thought it would be fun to do the um, Lewis and Clark expedition and, and they get to the other side of the earth and discover it just drops off. Um, so that's where it got started. Then Kevin and I talked about it some more. We decided we'd make it a kind of joint project. Um, and that was sort of the origin of the whole thing. It goes back a long, long way. Um, but what I was, the original intent I had, or the original point of interest, whatever you want to call it, would be what kind of a story would you have if the European settlement in the New World hadn't been so overwhelming so quickly, which is what it was in the real world. And, uh, and then I thought of the idea of using magic just because I thought it would be really cool to use, you know, different kinds of magic than what people are accustomed to. So, yeah. and they, had did, to, they had to have Walter on board. Yeah. Huh? Um, it, they, we had to have the magic, or, or it just wouldn't work out even with the thundering. Um, but uh, uh, but it is a cool idea that I that I, I we were looking for something to, uh, to make the change and I I hit on Haley's comment I think I think that I, I think I get to take credit for that because the timing was perfect and 1759 is this cool nexus year uh, the 18th century is is one of my areas of areas of knowledge I'm a history guy and and I was so excited to get pulled in on this <laughs> that's when he pitched it to me. Uh, but it's a very interesting conflict because the sort of trailer tears thing, the, the 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 what happens to the natives in the 19th century isn't certain in 1759. It isn't clear exactly how the European empires uh, 
we're going to sort everything out with the natives. Things are not decided, and that's that's sort of the perfect historical setting where you know that that what you do now can affect everything that happens in the future. You know, stopping the Trail of Tears by having some sort of Cherokee rebellion in 1830 just isn't good enough. Um, but this is a different setting, and and whatever happens after the end of our book, what what the, what the rest of the um, rest of the 18th century would be like, I think is fascinating to me, and I'd like to see how it all turns out. We we have changed history, which is which is just the coolest thing about writing history. <laughs> Might there be a sequel? Well, we'd like there to be a sequel, but, you know, Tony, you know the reality of life. It'll depend on how well the book sells, you know. Um, Yeah, we'd like there to be a sequel. We certainly would, but um, you know how it goes. Um, If sales are good enough, then yes, we'll do a sequel. If they're not good enough, then... Uh, you know, they don't want to continue. It's just, it's a business. And uh, we just have to work. We're still interested. Uh, we're, huh? We're interested, in, we're interested in what happens next. The question is whether we'll get to do yeah. it. Well, the only thing I would add is one other aspect of the book which we haven't um, talked a whole lot about is one part of the book is we go in some, uh, especially not right in the beginning, but later on in the book, uh, the situation in New York City was uh, quite fascinating at the time. Um, and it's a part of the history of race relations in the United States most people don't really know about. Um, you know, people will think of, of, of slavery as being something in the South. Well, originally it wasn't. Uh, there was a stretch of time when New York City had more slaves than any state in the country. Um, and that's the period we're in. Uh, and that also allows us to bring in African, especially West African mythology, uh, which is completely different again. And uh, a large part of that's based on, on blacksmiths were considered to have um, magical powers. Um, that's a long theme in West African history. It goes way back. Because uh, Africa had been in the Iron Age for about 2,000 years. Um so we were able to bring that in also. There's a lot of that uh, uh, at the end of the book in terms of, of the various unfolding. Um, so that was a lot of fun to deal with. Um, and like I said, again, it's different. You know, it's not... Uh, um, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but fantasy is almost always based on a kind of medieval European trope is essentially what it tends to be based on. Um, and this is quite different. Um, that mythology doesn't figure it all. Yeah. Trying not to be just another sword and sorcery was a, is, is always a challenge. You want to bring something new to the table. And I think we do. So the book is council of fire by Eric Flint and Walter Rich Hunt. Uh, it's uh, out now at booksellers everywhere, and uh, it's just a, a cool addition to this uh, shared world universe, um, the Arcane America series. So Eric and Walter, uh, thank you so much for talking to us today about Council of Fire. Pleasure, okay. Tony. All right.
Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 46 He'd swung Angruvadal into armor, shields, and bodies until a normal man's arm would have given out, but Ashok called upon the heart of the mountain and continued long past human endurance. That path he'd taken through the village was clearly marked in red. His long merchant's coat hung in blood-soaked tatters. He'd been wounded several times, but none deep enough to be of concern. Angruvadal seemed to be enjoying itself. Ashok ran toward the open square where he'd turned aside a mob earlier. Large groups of horsemen were riding parallel to him. The townsfolk were trying to stay out of the way and were being ridden down for their trouble. Some of the Somsak had taken to the rooftops and were launching crossbow bolts his way. The ice made everything treacherous. One slip, a moment on the ground, and Ashok would be pinned there to die. But his opponents were only men, and so were far more vulnerable to the bad footing than he was. A few crossbowmen lost their grip and slid helplessly from the roofs. When he reached the square, he had to pause and take stock. The heart was being used to maintain his physical strength, so he couldn't call upon it to augment his senses. But he didn't need supernatural perception to know that he was horribly outnumbered, and crossing the open space toward the castless quarter would put him in grave danger. And Gruvedal warned against it. Between the homes, he had some chance of outlasting the Somsack, but in the open, there was only death. Ashok welcomed the idea. The first warriors he'd faced had been inexperienced, probably the young and the foolish, sent out to shake the trees to flush their quarry. The men who were waiting for him in the square appeared to know what they were doing. The Somsak had no standardized uniform, but these were wearing more armor, and their weapons appeared to be of higher quality. Most importantly, they seemed confident without being incautious. These were experienced combatants, and they were all that stood between him and the burning castless quarter. Swatting incoming crossbow bolts out of the way, Ashok charged. Even though they were veterans, these Somsak were still raiders at heart, and working together didn't come naturally to them. 
Very few of them were carrying shields, and those who were had no formation to speak of. Ashok crashed into the men, and Gruvadar slicing back and forth. Those who tried to parry, he swatted their blades aside and struck them down. He smashed shields out of the way and hacked at their limbs. Men fell, but more took their place. The warriors surrounded him. He was stronger and faster than they were, but there were just too many. Angruvadal warned him of incoming threats, and Ashok turned as fast as he could, meeting each attack, dodging or turning it aside. A spear sliced across his calf. A sword nicked his back. He killed each one in turn. Bodies fell in gushing heaps. Normal men would have run. But the Somsak were not normal. Their courage verged on insanity. An extremely good swordsman had survived several furious exchanges with him and was still standing. Though his expression was a mask of concentration, the tattoos on his face transformed it into a perpetual leering grin. Annoyed, Ashok swung with all his might, and the stinging blow ripped the sword from his opponent's hands. But before he could finish that one, he had to turn to catch a descending axe. Angruvadar warned him that the talented swordsman had drawn his knife. But it was too late. By the time he threw down the man with the axe, the blade was driven deep into his back. Ashok turned, swung from the shoulder, and took the top of the leering man's skull off. But the damage was done. Hot blood was pouring from the hole and rolling down his back. He lurched to the side. The crowd parted a bit as the Somsak sensed the sudden weakness and were confused by it. Ashok reached up with his free hand over his shoulder and found the dagger's hilt sticking out. He tried to pull it free but couldn't get a good angle. Now the heart of the mountain, rather than lending all its strength to his limbs, had to concentrate on keeping him alive instead. The bleeding stopped but now his arms felt heavy and his legs burned. The veteran Somsak realized that a terrible blow had been struck, and the circle closed as Ashok finally got a grip and yanked the blade out of his back. He planted the dagger in a warrior's neck and returned to the fight. The roar of the flames was his beacon, and Ashok tried to steer the crowd in that direction. A few brave men hurled themselves at him, trying to entangle him, but Angruvadal saw that coming. He would not die crushed under a pile of bodies, and everyone who tried to lay their hands on him left those hands in the snow. They'd neared the drainage ditch. Ashok kicked a shield and knocked the warrior holding it into the freezing water. From the way the man disappeared, thrashing beneath the slush, it was deeper than it looked. The ditch was 15 feet across, too far for even a strong man to jump across without a running start. With a roar, Ashok lashed out, swinging Angruvadal in a wide arc, trying to force his opponents back. And as soon as they gave him the tiniest bit of distance, he turned, called upon the hearts to give him strength, and leapt. He nearly made it. Ashok hit the bricks on the far side with his chest. His lower body landed in the freezing water. It was an incredible shock to the senses. Scrambling for purchase against the ice, Ashok tried to pull himself out. He rolled to his feet, scattering bits of ice and fresh blood.
Concentrating on his strength had caused the wound in his back to open again. He lifted his sword just in time to knock aside a hurled spear. One of the Somsak tried to leap across after him. He made it half the distance and hit the icy water with a splash. The others gave him rude gestures and shouted insults as the soldiers armed with crossbows pushed their way through the crowd to take a shot. Ashok had no time for their foolishness and continued on toward the castless quarter. He was freezing. His clothing was soaked. Blood was sluggishly leaking from a dozen wounds, and Ashok cursed himself for using up so much of the heart's precious magic on someone so terribly unworthy. After passing through the swirling smoke, what he saw on the other side came as a shock. He'd expected to find a slaughter, and that much was true, but the bodies he stepped over belonged to Somsak raiders, not untouchables. The raiders on this side hadn't seen him arrive because they were fleeing back toward the bridge. They had been beaten by makeshift clubs, stabbed with pointed sticks, and struck by thrown stones. The Somsak were fierce, but they'd not been expecting resistance, and they'd walked right into a maze of barracks and shanties where they were outnumbered ten to one and set the place on fire. There were at least a dozen dead warriors, and two or three times that many castless bodies in view. Yet from the way the castless were celebrating, dancing about and showing off looted weapons, they were considering it as a great victory. Little did they realize that there were many more raiders on the other side of the bridge. And they'd be coming back, prepared and in force. Everyone here would be made to pay for this transgression. What have you done? Ashok demanded. The castlers didn't stop their celebrations, not for questions, and not even to battle the fires that were spreading through their quarter. What have you done? They heard him that time. A few stopped, but most were too caught up in the moment. It was like a fervor had come over them. When they actually saw who it was, they began to cheer. Fall, fall, fall. It sickened Ashok to the core of his being. These scum chanting his birth name while they desecrated the corpses of their betters. Mother Dawn hobbled up to him, wearing a somsack helmet backwards on top of her frizzy mane. You had to pick your path, Fall, and we had to pick ours. You had no right to kill them. She looked at him, coated in blood and filth, and judged him a hypocrite. But you do. I'm already condemned. An uprising is the gravest breach of the law. Have you come to punish us then, protector? That isn't my place anymore. But it doesn't make you any less wrong. A young castless man was crouched next to one of the dead Somsack and had taken a rusty old saw to his neck, intending to take a trophy. Ashok walked over and kicked the boy away from the body. Leave them be. The boy scrambled to his feet and ran away. Whenever we do wrong, they take our heads and stick them on poles as a warning to the rest. The mother explained. Seems fair to give a warning back now, don't it? Didn't you used to do that yourself on occasion? Killing a man was one thing, but ruining his body out of spite so that his people couldn't honor it later was different.
Ashok had never cared for how they'd left the bodies of witches and traitors on the Inquisitor's dome to be torn apart by vultures, either. There will be no more of that. The mother gave him a little bow. We'll do as you command. Then run. A horn blew on the other side of the fire. The warriors are coming back, and this time they'll be ready. Is there another way out of this canyon? The old woman nodded. She nearly lost the helmet. Our kin have lived here for generations, and unlike the workers who live harvest to harvest, our memories are long. Some of the old mines pass through the hills. There is a way. Then take it. He had no idea where these castles would go, but the non-people were turning out to be full of surprises. He'd brought this suffering down on them, so it was his responsibility to make it right. He didn't know why he cared, but he wanted to know. The children I brought you. Take them somewhere safe. Good. I'll hold them at the bridge. You might stop these here, but the rest won't ever stop now, Fall. Oh, no. You've started something great. This has been a long time coming. There's those in the capital who want every last one of us gone for good. There's plans and schemes and plots, all waiting on what you do here today. And before the ashes even cool, the whole world will change. Once the boulder starts rolling down the hill, it won't stop to heed the pebbles. There was no way some castless crone from a mountain farming village in the middle of nowhere understood the will of the judges. What are you? She gave him a toothless grin. I'm merely an old lady more interested in the near future than the distant past. The horn blew again. Two sharp, short blasts. The Somsac were coming. Take your people and get out before I change my mind. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and new magical never-dry fly flakes that are guaranteed to keep your horn turned to the sear and your flash pan black powder as arid as the dust of the moon, so you'll never have to face a Fort Necessity situation with wet powder like old George had to. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, authors of Council of Fire. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 